mindfulness mode. I believe courage is already in you to be able to take on anything that you'll ever need to take on. Hey, Mindful Tribe, welcome to Mindfulness Mode. I'm here with an author, speaker, personal development coach today who has been through so many challenges. That is what gives him the cred in order to help so many other people. And he is absolutely passionate about helping other people recognize their their innate courage, their creative genius, and their compassion so that they can make a difference in the world around just like he has. So I'm here with Clint Hatton, today. Clint, are you in mindfulness mode today? I absolutely am, Bruce. I am. I'm ready to go today. We are awesome. We're ready to have a great conversation. It's great to meet you. It really is. Clint, what does mindfulness mean to you? Mindfulness means to me, it's probably a simple definition, but what it means to me is, you know, first and foremost, um, being very intentional or just aware of, of, you know, where I'm at, being present in the moment, which I think was something that I was challenged with greatly through most of my life. And then I think it's also for me, mindfulness is being able to recognize, you know, in real time, uh, what is needed, you know? So for example, I'm, I'm a fitness guy. I, I love to work out. Um, so when I'm, when I'm working out, you know, and I'm lifting heavy weights, it's very well known for people in the fitness industry that when you focus on and pay attention to, and even, even focus your mind on muscle contraction, you know, things like that. I use it in that regard. Um, I use it to manage emotions. Oh, tell us more about that. That's really interesting because, you know, I know I've talked to a lot of people who have kind of been on and off with fitness and then, you know, they get into it, then they get out of it. Have you ever had times in your life when it dropped out and and you kind of got away (laughs) from it and you just had to pull back? You knew the answer to that already before you asked it, didn't you? <laughs> well, I want there's, to hear it from you. <laughs> there's a few, you know, I know a few guys that I think uh, have never missed the mark on that. But yeah, I have, you know, I mean, I grew up as an athlete, Bruce, you know, from the time I was like four or five years old, I was playing, you know, sports and very active yeah. and through high school and junior college. And so, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, very diligent during those years. But then, yeah, probably early 20s. I got into the car business at one time and, you know, we, we put in a ton of hours, you know, we were on our feet, uh, 50, 60 hours, you know, a a week. And so I kind of got away from it for a season. And then I realized I was like the pills, very dull boy, you know, getting a little bit, uh, a little soft. So then I would get back into it. But I think, you know, if I, if I look at just the character of my life, generally speaking, I've been someone who's been pretty active but absolutely, I've had some, and I'm sure we'll we'll probably get there with, you know, part of my story. Uh, we suffered a tragedy, and and there was definitely a short period of time there where, just physically, mentally, and emotionally, just couldn't get there. Just could not uh, put myself into a place where I was physically active in that way. But even that, you know, had its season, and that had to end. So what are your ways to stay active? Do you run? Do you Mm. tell me more about that? Well, and it's funny, that's changed over time too. You know, you go back even a few years ago and, you know, a lot of people have these watches now, these little smart watches that track your steps. And at that time I was working at a job where I was sitting a lot. I had death by meeting, you know, all day long. I was just constantly meeting with, with people and staff and, so I began to realize that I was starting to get soft partly because I was sitting too much. So, you know, I walked like 10 miles a day for probably about a year and a half or so. But for me and my body type, I know it's, you can't tell on screen here, I'm not super tall, but I do have some muscle mass. I'd started to get what I call skinny fat, if you will. You know, I'd lost yeah. some weight, but I just wasn't strong, you know? Yeah. So that's when my wife and I, who we both work out together, got into a routine, which we've been on now for a solid three plus years. So for us, what that looks like is it's a mix of uh, hit routines. A lot of your listeners are probably going to be familiar with that term. That's just a really high intensity type of workout. Uh, you know, I'm 57. And so one of the things I like about that is I'm able to control the movements in terms of just minimizing the amount of stress on my joints. Um, you know, I had a few major knee surgeries from my previous athletic days, so I kind of work around that. So hit routines just to, you know, kind of keep my my uh, 
my heart rate strong uh, to keep the weight down because it really helps me stay leaner. And then we also three days a week, it just kind of alternates. We lift weights and just do various things. I think Bruce, the thing I've learned, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, you know, a certified coach or anything like that. So nobody listening to this, don't take this as, right. <laughs> as official advice. But what we do know about our body is it's always good to mix things up because if you get too used to doing the same thing, your body adapts and then you just don't get quite as much uh, growth out of it. So, so we change things up all the time. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's really important. And so uh, tell me about food intake. Do you and your wife have a, have a regimental plan for that or do you kind of take it pretty easy or what? Yes, that's that's a great question. And a, you know, a lot of this, you're going to hear me probably say a couple of times for, during this uh, conversation that in the last few years, because we made a lot of changes in the last few years. And so for me, what happened, we, you know, we experimented with a few different things, intermittent fasting, um, which I still do to some degree. But what, you know, Mediterranean diet, I had some blood work. Actually, now that you asked me that question. A few years ago, I had some blood work done and it just didn't come back favorable. You know, I wasn't wasn't in danger zone, but I was in that kind of yellow zone, getting too close yeah. to the danger zone. Yeah. And so uh, the Mediterranean diet worked for me for a while. But what happened about two years ago, I, I hit this plateau. And again, this is not advice for anybody else because all of our bodies are different. But I just couldn't lose any more fat no matter how hard I tried, it seemed like. So give or take, about two years ago, I, I tried keto which I know is very popular with a lot of people. And for me, oh my gosh, it was unbelievable how fast it worked for me. So I am pretty regimented with keto. Um, and again, that doesn't work for everybody. My wife does not, but we both eat, you know, we, we well, I'll, I'll start with this. We start out every single day with a drinking a product called A1 Greens, which is a, a supplement, but it's a powder of all kinds of super greens and probiotics and and uh, mushrooms and all, all kinds of just really healthy, nutrient-dense uh, ingredients. So we drink that first thing in the morning every single day. So that's definitely a ritual. And then the rest is mainly just eating clean. You know, for me, I keep my carbs down and, and just try not to eat too much junk. <laughs> yeah, right, right. That's... That's really important for sure. You've got a new book, Clint, Big Bold Brave, and I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about your your book. I like the subtitle, How to Live Courageously in a Risky World. And do you think that a lot of us don't take enough uh, chances? We don't get out there and really and really dig in and do the stuff that's dangerous. Yeah, I I do think so. Um, and dangerous, you know, I, I'm not talking about. Like I'm not the type of person that's probably going to go and jump off a 200 foot cliff. Uh, I'm not really fond of heights. I always like to joke. That's why I stayed at five eight. It was just it was just right. You know, it was a good good, <laughs> not yeah. not too high, not too low. <laughs> yeah, but but in in all seriousness, you know, I I think it's not necessarily about dangerous things that you know could cause you physical harm if you do them. Although some people are thrill seekers, and that's that's okay. Maybe appropriate for them. But I do think it's our perception of chances or risks we might take of stepping out into things that maybe we've dreamed about for a long time or have thought about doing for a very long time, but maybe the danger of failure or, you know, the danger of um, it not working out the way we had thought, you know, I think that is epidemic. You know, I work with a lot of people. Um, we talked a little bit before we got on today, I was a pastor for 17 years and, you know, during my years as a pastor, my role was heavy in the coaching and mentoring side of things, you know, because pastors, you know, depending on their role, they can do a lot of different things. Sure. And I would say that's one of the most prevailing things that people really struggle with is taking some risks and whether it's with a relationship, you know, um, take, I've been married for almost 20 years. Am I willing to take a risk and have a conversation with my wife or her with me that maybe we've never had because we're afraid of the danger of an argument or of not agreeing, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, very interesting. Well, let's just talk about uh, what's 
I know in my mind, and that is your son Gabriel, you know, met with uh, real tragedy and yeah. he took chances and he was a guy that wanted to just really grab life and, and grab a hold of excitement. Tell us about Gabriel and, and what happened. Yeah. Thank you, Bruce. He, he, um, you know, the book title that you read off a minute ago, Big Bold Brave, that he's the inspiration behind it. You know, it's, the book is about far broader things than, than just his life, but uh, he's the one who inspired it. You know, he was one of those, we have three boys, uh, he, he being the oldest. And from very early on, you know, he was one of those high energy kids, um, really strong communication skills at a very young age, which at times was really cool as a parent. You're like, oh, look how smart he is. And then yeah. when he would talk back to you at five years old, hey, whoa, <laughs> you know, <laughs> slow so, it down a little. Like, like, yeah, exactly. So for all of us, you know, our, our gift is sometimes our curse, but yeah. he, uh, but he was, you know, really intelligent. And from very early on, pretty much if he set his mind to something, you know, it was a done deal. He was going to do it. And so what happened is about eight years old, uh, he went up in a small aircraft with his uncle Danny mm -hmm. and just loved it. I mean, it got in his blood instantly. And so he made a decision at that age that you know he wanted to become a pilot. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like most parents were like, okay, you know, that's wonderful. That's, that's cute. And didn't really think much about it because he's only eight years old and, you know, who sure. knows next week it could be, you know, you want to be a mountain climber or for him, like the CEO of a company made a lot of sense because he always liked to be in charge and all that. But, you know, Bruce, he, hold on, he held on to it. He never let go of it. And what ended up happening was by the time he was a freshman in high school, some opportunities presented themselves that, that he jumped on. One was we have, I live in the, uh, in the Dallas area in a city called McKinney. And we have in our school system in high school, a four-year aviation program, an educational program track, okay. which yeah. is not typical. There's very few of those uh, in the United States, at least as of right now. Yeah. And so, you know, he availed himself to that, he got involved in that. And then same thing in his freshman year, he joined a club, which would end up being a massive catalyst to him being able to actually begin to live his dream. This club was started by a guy named Kevin Lacey. It's called Tango 31 Aero Club. And what Kevin did is he he created this uh, this environment where kids who are interested in aviation and not necessarily flying, by the way, you know, in some cases, uh, he's helped kids who want to go into aircraft maintenance and stuff like that. And many, after being with him for four years, went on to get, you know, the certifications uh, that they needed to be able to work for major airlines, stuff like that. In Gabriel's case, though, it was to fly. So by the time he was a sophomore, uh, which was for him, he was about 16 years old. He began to get some airtime. Uh, and that was all by sweat equity. I want to point that out. You know, they had to they had to work for a couple of years to get to even that point. And he would have them do, you know, oil changes and they would work on parts. And really, as the club has progressed over the years, they've done major overhauls and put together literally almost full planes. But you know, he uh, so he had to do all that. And then at 16, he soloed Bruce before he actually even had his driver's license to drive, which was a little surreal, you know, kind of a strange yeah, experience, I guess. So but he took to it, you know, he really took to it. And so he's chasing his dream. He's living his dream, really. And uh, by the time he was 17 years old, which is the youngest you can be to earn a private pilot's license certificate here in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, he went, took the test, which, you know, for your listeners, it's a book about the size of two or three of the old phone books that we used to have back in the day, right? Yeah. yeah. This huge thing. And he passed the first time. And then he took his check ride and went on his flight with his instructor and just aced it. So he became a pilot and he's living his dream. So that went on for several months. And then about three months shy of his 18th birthday, it was September 23rd of 2019. He was just getting hours, you know, so for any, um, you know, young pilot, and I'm not talking about age, just a new pilot. It's all about the hours. So he sure. was just, you know, taking every opportunity he had to, to gain hours. And he had a friend that attends the University of Arkansas, which is north of us a little bit. So he flew up there and dropped her off. And then on his return trip, he got about 20 minutes out of Fayetteville and what the NTSB would end up ruling, which is the federal organization that, you know, investigates all crashes of any kind. 
um, he came into a mountainous area <clears throat> and an unexpected weather system came through. He lost his horizon. Uh, it's called spatial disorientation. And he ended up flying into the, to the mountainside and he lost his life. Oh, and wow. so, you know, needless to say, um, our world changed forever I in a guess. moment, in oh, a moment, gosh. you know, uh, all, all the hopes and dreams and, you know, things that we imagined as parents that, you know, he would accomplish and the things that he would do. And, you know, all of that just literally changed in a moment, you know. Yeah. Clint, do you still remember the phone call on September 23rd? Yeah, well, it, it was it was a series of phone calls the way it went down, Bruce. I, I actually initially, I was just out running some errands or still this day, don't really remember what I was out doing. But anyway, I came back home. It was about eight o'clock, 8.15-ish. And my wife, was on the phone. And it was one of those things where, you know, sometimes when you walk into a room with someone that you're very familiar with and you can just see on their face and by the tone of their voice that something's off. And it was one of those kinds of situations. Yeah. So I was just kind of looking at her and, you know, waiting to see if I could figure out what was going on. And then, then I could tell by the words she was using that she was talking to Kevin, his, his mentor, which yeah. doesn't happen. So immediately I knew something was wrong. And yeah. so she got off the phone. So it was at that time, all we knew was, you know, Kevin tracked and still does all, all of his pilots. They have a, you know, like an iPad type device that tracks, you know, their flight and how they're doing and elevation, all that stuff. So all we knew Bruce at that moment was that he, he had disappeared off the radar. Okay. We didn't know exactly where we didn't know if he was okay. You know, we didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. And so, um, that's a very layered story. So I'll spare you, you know, for the sake of time, a lot of the, the ebbs and flows of the night, it was just a very long, grueling, painful night. Um, information was not coming in quickly, nor was it coming in clear. I had a few different conversations with the sheriff's department that was in charge of the search and rescue throughout the night. Mm -hmm. And all they would tell me is, is it was in an area that um, was very remote, which was true and didn't have cell phone coverage, which we had held out hope. That was the reason why maybe he wasn't calling us. You know, we had hoped sure. he just landed somewhere. And, um, and then, but at the same time throughout the night, news stations, which we were just tracking through our phone were reporting little bits of information along the way like the crash itself. And then that mm -hmm. there was at one point about one ish, one thirty in the morning, they reported a single person fatality. Mm. And so that was when I thought it was over. Yeah. Um, but shortly after that, you know, we, that was, that was a whole experience in of itself. Cause then I had to turn to Amaryllis, who's my bride and, and tell her that he's gone, or at least we thought he was gone. But then later we ended up, calling the uh shortly after that i called the sheriff's department again and they still couldn't confirm anything so ultimately what happened is we didn't know until 3 30 a.m officially mm -hmm. that he had passed away and it turned out it was really just policy they were waiting for the coroner to be on site they sure. found him at 11 p.m and everybody knew when they arrived that you know he was gone so it was just yeah. it was policy Discover the remarkable journey of Anonymous John. No one likes feeling alone, anxious, or overweight. But John refused to let his circumstances define him. When his weight ballooned to a staggering 600 pounds, he made a choice to take control of his life. He began documenting his journey in his journal, and after shedding his first 103 pounds, he decided to share his story with the world. Through his journal, he offers inspiration and hope to anyone struggling with similar challenges. If you're looking to be inspired and uplifted, the Anonymous John podcast is for you. Join us on this journey of transformation and visit our website, theanonymousjohn.com. Right. Wow. I just can't even imagine the devastation that both you and Amaryllis must have felt. Yeah, it was a nightmare, to, to yeah. put it mildly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then you had your two boys, you and your wife, what are some of the first things you did to move through this, to deal with it, to, to just survive really? 
Yeah. And that's well said, Bruce. That's exactly what happens. You're in, I call the first year of this kind of a tragedy, the shock and awe phase. Yeah. Um, because it goes on throughout the year, you know, the birthdays, the milestones, the different things that it becomes incredibly real that this person really is never coming back, you know. Yeah. Um, but obviously in that moment, it's, it's overwhelming. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, what happened, Bruce, my, I, my two sons who are nine and 14 at the time, they were not up with us during this time because they had school the next day. It was a school sure. night. You know, it was just, it was just a Tuesday, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so when we got them up in the morning, that's when I had to have what I call the impossible conversation. And so I let them know what happened. I honestly, Bruce, don't remember to this day the words I used. It was, I know it was kind of direct and to the point because when they walked out, grandparents were already here. It was very obvious there was something going on. Um, And then after the initial, you know, just onslaught of their emotions and the crying and the screaming and, you know, just the awful situation, what I recognized, Bruce, was, and I think a lot of this has to do with, I'd mentioned I had been a pastor for 17 years and, you know, I've walked people through a lot of, you know, awful circumstances and in some cases who have lost loved ones. And I do think I had an advantage, Bruce, that morning in this way i did not have an advantage with the pain nothing prepares you for the emotional pain that you're suffering in that moment what i did have an advantage of is i had seen over the years how marriages could implode uh, many marriages end up in a divorce I, you know, I don't know what the numbers are but it's it's too many uh, when they lose a child and then you know families often kind of implode as well and so i was aware of that. And so I just felt like in that moment, I I knew a couple of things that needed to be said. So what I started with is I said, boys, we have two choices. We can choose to identify with this tragedy. We can, we can have what I call a death mentality, meaning that if we're so focused on the tragedy of it, how he died, he died in a plane crash, you know, and, and just all the things involved around no longer having him in our lives, which we'll experience, right? We're going to, we will still forever experience moments of, of it being very clear. He's not with us physically, but if that was our focus, then we were going to end up being shells of who I believe we were created to be. And we were mm-hmm. going to be, it would become our identity rather than just part of our story. Right. And so I told him, you know, our, our, there's a second option. There's a second choice and that's what we're going to do. And that is we're going to choose life. And for me, what that simply meant is I told him, you know, as I described Gabriel to you moments ago, you know, he he was just such a go-getter. He attacked life. I joke today that, you know, everybody loves these t-shirts with phrases, you know, it's always a big thing. And if I bought yeah. one for him today, it would say just simply what's next, because that's how he was. Yeah. It was just what what can I attack next? What can I learn next? You know, he taught himself guitar. He became an amazing photographer, all, all in addition to, you know, be, achieving his dream of becoming a licensed pilot. And so I told him, we're going to live like he lived. Mm-hmm. Now we'll have our own expression of that, you know, cause we all have different giftings and passions and stuff, but that's what we're going to choose to do. We're, the only way we can honor his life is to live our own the way he lived his. Right. And so that was one Bruce, very huge key that morning that has definitely served us well, not perfectly. We have not been perfect about anything I'm going to talk to you about today. Um, but it did give us, I like to say it gave us a compass, something to keep recalibrating to. But the second piece of that, which I think was just as critical, is I told them, you know, we don't know what grieving is going to look like for us. Um, and even individually, you know, not just as a family unit, but, you know, for me, for Amaryllis, for Joel, for Liam. And so I told them, you know, we're going to, there's days where you're going to be really, really sad or have moments of sadness and you're going to want to cry and it's okay. And there's going to be times where you're going to be really angry. And, you know, we, we don't use foul language as a habit. And uh, for us, that's not a religious thing. We just, you know, we, we try to use you know more noble words. But, you know, I, I even said, if you're so angry that you need to cuss, you need to know it's okay. You know, the main thing is, is we each have to be able to actually experience whatever it is we're feeling. And I think mm-hmm. what was the most helpful I'm finding out over the course of time because it's been you know a little over three and a half years ago now. And yeah. I and as I have, you know, I've had quite a few interviews 
um, since I've written the book with uh, clinical therapists and psychologists and MDs and finding out that a lot of what we did, they're proving, you know, even in the clinic, that's very helpful. And that was, I led the way, mm-hmm. you know, as the father, I told them that morning, we told them, you know, they're nine and 14. This is not a rule for you. This is a rule for all of us. And we're going to do it together and we're going to do it openly. Mm-hmm. So if there's a time and there has been times where I need to cry. I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it in front of you. I'm not asking you to talk to me when you're feeling something or show your emotion and work through it in front of me. And then I'm going to go, you know, hide behind closed doors when it happens to me so I can come off as this strong leader. You know, Um, we we've done it very intentionally. Definitely. You know, mindfulness definitely comes into that, uh, comes into play for sure. And so that's what we've done as a family. And again, not perfectly for anybody listening, but um, with great intention and it's really served us well. So were you still a pastor back in 2019? Yeah, I was. As a matter of fact, uh, just a few months before that, we had been on staff at a church for many years and had just really felt led, if you will, that it was time for us to start something of our own. And so mm-hmm. we had done that. Uh, at that time, it was very new. So we were just meeting in our home. Okay, And I'd really just begun to look at, um, you know, buildings and things like that, just to kind of do the normal progression of how a lot mm-hmm. of churches start. But to your point, you know, what ended up happening was, uh, again, no advantage for the pain, but some advantage with just life experience of seeing how challenging grieving can be. Uh, we told everybody shortly after this happened that I said, I'm not going to make any major decisions for one year. So we are no longer looking for a building. We're no longer going to advertise. We're no longer looking to grow, you know, any of that stuff and made a commitment to the families that were with us. If you want to, you know, if you can do what we've been doing, which is just in the home with those eight families, you know, very small, then we'll continue to do that. And if it's not, you need, you know, it's okay. And, And so ultimately everybody stayed and, but over the course of time, Bruce, um, and I'm talking a couple of years cause it took us a while to really figure out just, you know, who are we now? Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. it changes you. For sure. So who are we now? What do we really want to do? Because that's something I feel like, you know, when, when you suffer a loss like this, I think we're all very aware, at least on an intellectual level, that time is precious, right? We all know that yeah, none of us are going to totally. live forever, right? We know yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. But it, but it's a, it's a whole different thing when it hits you right in the face. And so we began to look at everything, you know, that we were doing, and ultimately um, we would end up actually joining forces, if you will, with another church of some very dear friends of ours that we had mentored quite a bit that had started their own. We started doing stuff together, which gave us a lot of peace and kind of a break of not having to try and grow something, but just to, you know, build community together. And ultimately we ended up deciding that where I was going with the book and and big bull brave, my company, the personal development side of things. And my wife is an artist. She really flourished um, several months after Gabriel passed when she decided to get back to painting she really began to flourish. And so it's, it gave us the freedom to decide what was best for us. And so that's why we actually laid that down January this year. Oh, you just did. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Right. Very interesting. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask you about the, the thought process of moving away from that, but you're still heavily involved in Christianity. Would you say? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. My faith is foundational. You know, um, I didn't necessarily say it when we were talking about what happened that morning but you know throughout that night you know we we prayed we we worshiped to music we read scriptures out loud you know we did all those things Mm -hmm. hoping obviously for a much different outcome and you know has has this challenged our our faith or our understanding of the goodness of god of course it did um but it just it hasn't changed for us that's still, you know, again, just very foundational for my wife and I both. And so uh, it's, it, it continues to, to be a central part of our lives. 
Well, I know art and creativity has really helped Amaryllis from the sounds of it. Has yeah. it helped you and, and your two sons, Joel and Liam? Has it helped them to move through this? Yeah, her art. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Gosh, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, in short, she had only started to paint about a year or so before Gabriel passed away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for your listeners, without going deep into history, she had never painted before. Now, she has journals from when she was even very little of stuff she had. And I'm going to use the word doodle. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but when I say that, I mean, it was very clear. She was very artistic. When I doodle, okay. I can barely do a stick, man, right? <laughs> she, so she had some things that she had drawn over the years that were obvious. She had a really deep artistic gift, right? But it but it never involved canvas. And so about a year before, she had she actually took a group of women to one of those things where you can go and I think it's, well, I don't know. You, you drink wine and you paint. I can't remember the name of the thing it's, now. I think it's a, like a paint night. Yeah, yeah. What, whatever, right? they, Something whatever they like call that. it. Yeah, there's a yeah, couple of yeah. different business models, but she went sure. to one of those. And that's what launched it. But then when Gabriel passed, you know, and we can probably talk some about that because mindfulness for me really became very... Um, a, a, a central focus as far as how I needed to be able to walk through this and move forward with my life after Gabriel's death. I, mm-hmm. I wasn't really as aware of mindfulness prior to that, but for her, she had set it down for several months, just didn't have it in her. And then there was a catalyst. She had a friend who, who saw this picture, you know, People can describe it different ways. You can say it was a vision, whatever, you know, however you want to characterize it. But she saw this scene play out where his name was Gabriel, of course, where she saw him in heaven and he was speaking with the angel Gabriel and the angel Gabriel was welcoming. Anyway, she saw this, you know, scene and there was colors and gold and, you know, all these things surrounding that. And this was just a couple of days after he passed away that she shared it with him. So it brought her a measure of comfort in that moment, just because for us and our faith, you know, she was reminded of, you know, he's, he's doing great now, right? It's those of us who are left behind there that are feeling the pain. But months later, she went back to that because her friend had written it out for, and she decided to start creating again. Mm -hmm. And her focal point was, I'm going to just do some angel wings that represent Gabriel, right? And it was incredible, Bruce. I'll never forget it. And this is what, um, I know it sounds like a rabbit trail probably to some of your listeners, but this is what really began to impact all of us, all four of us. I left. Now, keep in mind, again, she's very new at this. And I actually had never worked with the mediums that she was using to create this particular piece. So this is all brand new. I leave and all she has is just the background painting because that's her process. She always starts with whatever color she wants in the background. Then... I, I walk out, I run errands for two hours and she's using this really heavy, um, it's like acrylic type. I'm sorry, I'm not an artist. So I don't know the name. Of it. <laughs> yeah. I should know yeah. the name of it by now. It's like, yeah. it's not gelato, but it's something like that. Anyway, it's like a, a paste and a, and a, and okay. so you, you just use a, like a dowel, you know, mm-hmm. I come back two hours later and I said, so how are you doing? She's, she has this like stunned look on her face. I think I'm done. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, and then she shows it to me. And oh my gosh, we were just blown away. To this day, it's the only piece that'll never be for sale. Um, but that was when it really launched her. And so since then, she's done a lot of commission pieces. She's actually on the map now as an artist. She was invited to be a part of a very big show here in Dallas that had people from all over the world. And so her art um has really flourished. But your question, I love it because you know, the joy that she feels as she's painting because we have a one and a half story home our half story is is just a very large lofty like area and that's where her yeah. art studio is okay she creates up there and she'll have different music playing just depending on what she's feeling you know or whatever mm-hmm. but there's this incredible joy attached to that and it's tangible it it just floods our home you know and so i get to see these creations from the you know the very beginning to when she she has this whole process of even how he, she presents it to her clients and and just the excitement of each creation and how she experiments and does these different things, I think not only brings joy into our lives, but it pushes us 
to you know really want to to um, fully engage in our particular creative genius, whatever that may be. So, how has that affected Joel and Liam? I think with the with her art and my book too. I think those are two things where, if I could say it this way, we've we've put our money where our mouth is, because um, we made the decision that morning that we were going to chase our dreams and that we were mm-hmm. going to continue to live life. And Big Bull Brave, if I could just quickly explain why that name is so critical, because it really is do. also very central to everything we're talking about. Um, shortly after the conversations that I described earlier uh, on that on the couch in the morning after the crash, we were contacted by a couple of local news media because they were going to do a story on it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so one of the conversations with was NBC, and and she was very kind, but it, you know she's asking me if we can do an interview that day, and I'm like, there's just no possible way we can do an interview. Yeah. But at the end of it, and, and I want your listeners to kind of keep in mind what I said was our was our basis, right? Our foundation of here's how we're going to walk this out. She said something pretty profound. She said, "Well, before we hang up." I just want you to consider it. This is earlier in the day and you can call me back, but this is my assignment and I'm going to have to do a story on it tonight. And it turned out that she was a person of faith too. So we did have a connection point in that regard. Mm-hmm. And she said, if I do the story without you, it's going to be a report on his death. Uh-huh. If you allow me, I'll come to your home and I'll, I'll walk you through it. We can stop, you know, as much as we need to. And you can tell his story and about how he lived. And so I hung up. I didn't agree to it. You know, I, I said, I, I don't know. And then we had a family meeting right after that. Even my father-in-law uh, was here and mm-hmm. he was the one who actually suggested that this is your first chance, you know, to, to put this <laughs> to the test. Right. And yeah. so we, we did the interview. So the reason why that's important is somewhere in this interview, Bruce, I said he lived big, bold, and brave. You know, that wasn't a phrase we used. I don't even know where it came from, but I just said it and didn't even remember saying it because the interview itself, very much like some of the phone calls throughout the night, is just a blur. Sure. But what did end up happening was she created this three-minute segment, which was very beautifully done. She really did follow through on exactly what she said she would do with the footage and really made it about how he lived. And at the very end of it, instead of playing me saying it, she ended up closing it out with saying, and Gabriel's parents uh, want you to live like Gabriel, big, bold, and brave. So when I heard that back to me, it registered really deep in me you know now obviously it would be a couple of years before it would even become a thought of becoming a personal development company or a book Mm -hmm. but it did become a family mantra and so that was all part of this as well so once it came time for me to start writing the book and once you know she started doing her art that was both of our expressions of this oath this commitment that we made to each other as a family to live big bull brave so I think it's it's really been um, amazing for our sons because it's given them permission to chase their dreams. It's given them permission to, you know, still grieve their brother, still miss him. We miss him every single day. You know, you don't need a trigger for something like this. I, I there's, I don't even know how many times a day I probably think of about him. It's it's a lot every yeah, day, yeah. and they do too. But just <laughs> these intentional acts of us following through with me Mm -hmm. finally launching a personal development company, which is something I'd wanted to do for years and just didn't have the courage to do it. And her not just painting, but exposing herself to the world. And because she hadn't really put it out there publicly prior to that, you know, and just begin to push that out there and see how people have responded to it, I think has been really healthy for them to, you know, think about and pursue what they want to do. And they have, and they have in their own ways. Awesome. Well, I'm fascinated with the uh, work that Amaryllis is doing. How can Mindful Tribe check out some of her art? Yeah, I'll spell it for you because her name is Amaryllis and and your autocorrect will make it wrong every single time because it it sounds like the flower, but it's spelled differently. So if they go to art by Amaryllis, which is A-M-A-R-I-L-L-Y-S dot 
Com. If they go there, uh, they can they can see all of her beautiful art and some of the stories behind it because they all have names and they're meaningful and stories and um, it's she's got some really beautiful stuff. Cool art by amaryllis.com. And while we're talking about websites, yours is bigboldbrave.us, correct? That's exactly right. And I actually like to say, Bruce, it's bigboldbrave.us. And I know that's a play on words, but it's actually why I chose that particular domain. It was very intentional because part of what I believe, you know, is the truth in the book and the truth about um, just living a big, bold, brave life is that it's always going to involve collaboration, just like you and I are doing right now, you know, bringing value to your listeners by collaborating and having a conversation. So it's (laughs) bigboldbrave.us. Cool. Well, did you have any roadblocks when you started writing that book? Was there anything that just seemed like it was slamming in your face that you just couldn't go on? Yeah. You know, that's, something that you would almost assume would happen. And I think even when I went into it, I was prepared for that happening. But for me, that wasn't the experience I had. And I think this is a great time for me to interject how mindfulness uh, specifically to me has, has really helped me in so many ways. You know, what I would say it was probably, you know, several months after, um, after the accident. And I just, became aware that as part of the grieving process, you go through a lot of different things. You know, as you can imagine, there's a lot of emotions that change from day to day, sometimes hour to hour. But another thing that happens in grieving is it's physiological. You know, you're you're kind of in this cloud mentally and emotionally. Um, I'm most people that have known me for years would definitely consider me pretty ordered, pretty strategic, uh, administrative even. And that just wasn't me anymore. I mean, Mm -hmm. for a period of time, it was really challenging to try and not. And here's the thing, Bruce, not just stay focused on some of the things that I needed to do. It was even remembering that I needed to do them. Mm. That's how much it was impacting me. You know, it used to be and I use a calendar. I I use a lot of tools to, you know, stay on track and keep my word and all that kind of stuff. But I'm also one of those people that when I'm functioning well, I tend to remember a lot of things that need to be done without being reminded. <laughs> yeah. And and I really was going through a stage there where it wasn't even that I had to remind or, or I had to focus on doing it. It was just even remembering to even do it at all, you know? Right. And so one of the books that I got early on was um, by, and I, I should have looked up how to pronounce her name because I feel like I'm going to say it wrong, but Amishi P. Ja, I think is how she says it. It's J H A. But she's someone who has written a book on, it's called Peak Mind, and it's on mindfulness. And there's an explanation that she uses. Hers is is really in the area of attention. It's mindfulness, but it's really specifically on the area of attention, which was what I was struggling with. Mm -hmm. And so she uses this very simple analogy in the beginning of the book that ended up being really helpful. And ultimately, I would use a lot when I went to write the book. And that is she, she used the analogy of a flashlight. You know, and so when you when you use a flashlight, right, what are you doing? Well, you're you're in the dark and you're trying to use it to focus on something small that you need to be able to see clearly. Right. Right. And that's a part of our brain, the way it operates. So there's a flashlight that focuses on, on, a, on a single thing because it's required to execute whatever you need to do, whether it's getting out of danger or writing a book, you know, whatever it is. Then she uses this other analogy of a floodlight which obviously is much more broad, a very Mm -hmm. simple example. We use a floodlight. We use these all every single day, but a floodlight is we're driving a car, right? When we're driving a car, we can't be focused with our flashlight on just the road right in front of us, right? We have to have a floodlight. We have to be aware of everything going on so that we can recognize what decision may need to be made as we're driving, you know, lights, other cars, pedestrians, whatever. Sure. And I found that really helpful. It just made me, it gave me a, a language for myself that helped me recognize when I was just getting way off track with trying to maintain my attention on something. And then the third thing with that is uh, she talks about the juggler, which is basically your intentional decision-making of which is necessary in the moment, right? And so those were things that that I began to practice. And when it came time to write the book, so I can specifically answer your question now, 
um, one of the things that I did was I created an atmosphere because distractions, I'll back up and say this, because I'm sure a lot of your listeners are going to relate to this. I always consider myself like a professional multitasker. Okay. Now there's a lot, I'm sure you well know, there's a lot of brain science now that there is no such thing, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> At least not effective, right? But yeah. I was one of those people that felt like I was the consummate, you know, multitasker. Right. And so reading her book on mindfulness and attention obviously made me realize that's a, a myth, right? So I created an atmosphere in the office where I'm actually in right now. Um, for me, clutter mm -hmm. definitely affects my attention and my mind. If there is, if there's a lot of clutter, it kills my creative uh, flow. And I think that's true probably for most human beings, but sure. So I, I create a very clean ordered environment before I started writing the book. And then I put away all my distractions, you know, and these are all, I'm sure you talk about them all the time. Some of these things are very simple. They don't sound like much, but they have a massive impact. And one was this device I have in my hand, my phone, you know? So <laughs> yep. I had a schedule. Now I just created a schedule for myself. I had a goal of how many words a day I wanted to write Monday mm -hmm. through Friday to get to 30,000 words. I had this mathematical equation basically that was my goals for how I was going to write the book. And so that was from 8.30 to 10.30 in the morning. So I didn't just, you know, now you can, you know, put on do not disturb different things. But I knew for me, this was a massive distraction and trigger. So sure. I've turned off my phone and put it in another room when it was time to write. Mm -hmm. And so all of those things, <clears throat> I think, made a huge difference for me. So to your question, I did have to process complex emotions writing the book. Right. Because there, you know, obviously there are components of the book. This book, um, if I could say this, Bruce, just for your listeners, this is not your typical grieving book. And, and I don't mean that in any disrespect towards a grieving book, but that's just a small part of what this book was for. And so it does describe our process, but it's much greater than that. There's a lot of other stories. I include stories of people that have overcome incredible odds and that serve people and have done great things. So it's not even just about me or, or our family, um, but there are parts in it that are about the story with Gabriel and the inspiration. So, you know, I had to relive those every single time I would write them down or reread it to edit it. And so that went back to, and this is still using the mindfulness strategy. When I felt an emotion, then I recognized that, okay, that's where my attention needs to go right now. And sometimes right. it would last for just a couple of minutes, Bruce. I may just put the, uh, I, I kind of had two methods. Some of it I wrote, on the computer itself. Sometimes I hand wrote some stuff. So it just kind of depended on my flow that moment, but mm -hmm. I would just push down or set aside whatever it was. And then I would allow myself to feel. And in some cases, you know, it was just crying for a little bit and allow that to be my focus, my attention. And then it would only last usually for a couple of minutes, you know, and then my attention would go right back. I'd put that flashlight right back on the task at hand and at least for me, that really was very effective. And so it was a labor of love for me in a lot of ways. And it was quite easy to get the initial manuscript written. Now, for anyone who has written a book, have you written a book, Bruce? Have you written uh, a book? I have, yes. Yes. Okay. So I'm sure you know, you know, once you start getting into the editing process and some of the mechanics of getting your book in physical form, you know, that wasn't all fun. You know, some of that was right. a little more, um, you know, less, <laughs> less exciting. Yeah. Uh, but the process itself was actually really healthy and, and even joyful for me. But I really think some of those simple mindfulness principles that I had learned had a massive, massive uh, influence on that. Wow, that's powerful. It really is. I'm fascinated with this story, Clint, that you're sharing with us. And I want to thank you so much for sharing all the inner aspects of this story. I want to ask you also about bullying because I've uh, worked in bullying prevention for a long time. And I always ask my uh, interviewees about this. Do you have a story you can share about bullying somehow where mindfulness would have made a difference? 
Yeah, well, I think so. And, you know, this is a part of my story that I'm certainly not proud of because I never really, I never got bullied myself. Um, But I do have recollection of times when I was mainly in the, well, not mainly in the elementary school ages um, where there was a couple of instances where I did bully a kid. Now, you know, I'm 57 back in those days. I don't even know that we use that term too much. I mean, the term existed, but you know, didn't really think that much about it. And I remember even years later, I was probably in my mid thirties or later. And this is after I'd become a man of faith as well. I thought back to a few of those circumstances and, you know, even those circumstances, it wasn't this thing where I like honed in on one person and bullied them like, you know, every single day for months or years, it wasn't that, but also I don't want to belittle it. Even one time could have been enough to impact that person's life forever. And so that was something that really bothered me. And actually years later, I had an opportunity with at least one person that through Facebook, I saw them and I was able to apologize, you know, Mm -hmm. 20, 30 years later, you know, for, for my part, but to your point, you know, had back in those days, I think, you know, there were some things that were going on with my parents' marriage. Um, I went through some tough times at different times with just things that were going on in the home. And if I had understood at that age or had somebody coaching me, obviously at that age with mindfulness, I think it would have made a huge difference because I think I'd have been able to just stop that anger emotion and think through the consequence of, sure. you know, punching somebody or just pushing them around or whatever. Right. And, you know, the damage that that could cause them and really, you know, the, um, the character development that that's trying to create about who you are and right. it could have stopped it in its tracks. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's not always easy to share some of that. And I appreciate it for being vulnerable. I want to move on in the interview by asking you five quick answer questions. So just 30 <laughs> second answers are perfect. <laughs> okay. First one is this, who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life? Well, as far as mindfulness goes, I'm going to have to go back to uh, this book, Peak Mind, because it was, as far as influence goes, mm-hmm. it's what really drew my attention to it. And so the tools that she describes in that book have really been the biggest catalyst. Now, that said, and this is something I would strongly recommend to your listeners, you know, they need to be listening to your show every single episode, you know, because you need to get this in you. I listen to other podcasts, especially if there's someone who is maybe considered an expert in mindfulness. I'm constantly learning and growing. So there's others who actually have had an influence, but the biggest certainly are. Oh, that's that's awesome. Tell me how mindfulness has helped you deal with your emotions. Yeah, I'm going to give you a quick story if I could. I'll try to do it in 30 sure. seconds. <laughs> sure. But I, but I just think this is a really vivid example of it. And it involves our grieving process, but it involves just mindfulness in, in a moment. So the 4th of July, just this last year. So this is still pretty fresh. Uh, we were in Florida. My father-in-law lives down there. We went out on his boat. We were on an island. Again, it's the 4th of July weekend, a bunch of boats right on the beach, music my wife is puerto rican there's six boats that are all puerto ricans you know singing and dancing and having a great time and i was having a great time and then all of a sudden i began to recognize that emotionally i was really beginning to miss gabriel right and where mindfulness kicked in bruce was i knew in that moment that i needed to feel what i was feeling and because of what was going on all around me i could do it without it interrupting or affecting anything else going on. So I literally just, everybody was either in a a floaty right on the beach, you know, in the, in the shallow water or, you know, up to your waist. So I just bobbed Mm -hmm. 20, 30 feet away from everybody. Nobody even noticed because of all the, you know, fun happening. And I put my intention on what I was feeling about my son and I wept. It wasn't heaving, you know, snot coming out of your nose, kind of weeping. It was just, I allowed myself to be intentional in that moment. Just think about him, think about what I missed about him. And tears just came down my face. And that lasted for probably about 30, 40 minutes. And then same thing, recognize now it was time 
to shift. And so I bobbed my way back over and I used mindfulness to become present in that moment. We, we, that's when we had just started to eat and I rejoined the party. And so to me, that's, you know, it's simple, but a pretty profound example of how mindfulness can really help you manage your life and even your emotions. Yeah. Yeah. Great example of how to, you know, feel it to heal it. Yeah. That's, that's really a great story, Clint. Thanks for sharing that. Um, what about breathing? Do you find that there's a, a certain way that you breathe or certain techniques or anything that you have to say about breathing as it relates to mindfulness? Yeah. A premature question for my expertise, for sure. Because <laughs> that's actually something I, I was listening. Uh, there's a neuroscientist that I'm listening to that actually has an episode that just came out this last week. And it's like a two and a half hour episode on breathing itself. So to answer your question, I'm certainly no expert. Uh, I've been aware for some time that the way we breathe is incredibly critical. So I have used it. um, You know, for example, if I've felt myself overstressed or, um, you know, maybe I'm, I'm working on a project and I'm feeling pressure and stress from that. You can, if you're again, if you're being mindful of of what you're feeling as you're doing things, I can feel my chest even get a little bit tight, and my breathing change a little bit. And I grew up asthmatic; I, I had severe asthma up until my mid twenties. So I know what it's like to, you know, be in that position where you can't breathe at all, and that that weight that's on the inside of your chest. So I do sense it, and so then for me, it's a very simple technique. I just breathe into my nostrils blow out through my mouth. I just do that a few times. And I'm discovering now that I'm becoming a student of breath, that that's actually one of the most effective tools that you can use to uh, eliminate stress or anxiety. But I'm new in that one, Bruce. Uh, Like you, I'm a lifelong learner. And that's a topic that I'm digging into much deeper right now. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that. And uh, the next question is about a book, and you've already shared that, that your book is called Peak Mind by Amisha P. Tha. Uh, so we'll put that in our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. And the last question is about an app. Are there any apps at all that help you through some of this? Honestly, I have not used apps. Um, there, There is actually in my phone it does have a mindfulness setting. And so there are times when it'll give me an alert. Um, But to be very candid, I have not been very good or diligent in that regard. There have been times where it's been a trigger for me to look at what I'm doing right now. And if I fallen into my (laughs) Mr. Multitasker and not really doing, not really focused on the one thing. So it's helped in that regard. But uh, I would love for you to answer that question. If you've found one that you've, think is super helpful. Well, I just find that uh, having a note-taking app can really be helpful because, (laughs) you know, when I'm meditating or when I'm praying, sometimes something pops into my mind. I'm like, okay, I just want to remember this so it's not going to be just flooding my mind and I'm going to keep thinking I'm going to forget that. So I want to take a note of it and then move on in my thoughts at that present moment. So that's one of the things that helps me. Absolutely. I do practice that. I think that's a a very effective practice. And I think sometimes you, like for me, you can even be in church, right? You know, and as a pastor, you're supposed to be either focused on what somebody's saying or whatever. I no longer feel guilty about that anymore because your mind, and she talks about that actually in this book, that you cannot control your mind from wandering, but you can pay attention to where it's wandering, right? Exactly. So I use the same exact tool I keep. For me, it's Evernote. I use the Evernote yeah. app and I do the same yeah. thing. If something pops into my head, I just jot it down and then move on because I will forget it. <laughs> yeah. Evernote is a terrific app. Yeah. Well, it's been great talking to you. As we wrap up the interview, Clint, do you have any final words of advice for our guests? I think what I would, what I want to say right now is something that's really like strong in me and on me right now. And it's not so much advice as it is encouragement you know, and, and anybody who goes to my website will see this on there. I believe, I truly believe three things about every human being. I believe we were created to be courageous. And specifically in short, what I mean by that is I believe courage is already in you to be able to take on anything that you'll ever need to take on. Sometimes you need to learn how to tap into it. I believe everybody was created with a creative genius. 
I believe there's something inside every single human being listening to this show right now that you have a creative genius and you may need others to help you even figure out what that is because it's probably something that you do so naturally you don't even think it's creative or a genius. And then the third thing is we're created to be uh, compassionate. And I think compassion is not only something that I believe is already in the human spirit, but if there was ever a time in our world where we needed people to be mindful and compassionate, I think that's certainly today. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, Clint, thanks so much for being on the show and sharing your story. And uh, Mindful Tribe, I just in- encourage you to check out Clint's book, Big Bold Brave, and the Big Bold Brave dot us website. So thanks again, Clint. Thank you so much, Bruce. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, me too. All the best to you. Bye now. Take care. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I want to mention that, you know, maybe you are experiencing some challenges right now in life. Maybe you're feeling like you're stuck or you just are not able to move forward and accomplish what you want to accomplish. That's exactly what I do is I help people through my coaching who are feeling frustrated. Maybe some anxiety is involved. Maybe uh, you can't get through some kind of a habit that's holding you back. Well, I use hypnosis, as I'm sure you've heard me talk about this before, to help my clients move forward quicker and just leave these things behind and because you are a mindful tribe listener i'd love to offer you a free session so you are welcome to send me an email send me a message at bruce at mindfulnessmode.com so that we can jump on a free session and we will talk about this we will talk about how it is possible for you to move forward and All you need to do is just have this kind of determination to actually accomplish this. So I'm asking you to put, I'm determined, right there in the subject line of this email. Again, it's bruce at mindfulnessmode.com with the subject, I'm determined. And I challenge you to send me that email and we will jump on a free call and talk about how you can move forward. And with that, I just ask you to take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.